For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, we kick off the final week of the year with a look back at some of the show's best segments. Best is an entirely subjective and probably not accurate phrase here. More like segments that stood out to me and which I remember generating a decent amount of discussion at the time. And also, while I hope to make this an annual tradition for the last week of the year, since this is the first time I'm doing this, instead of just looking back at this past year, I've gone deep in the archives and also pulled out a couple of stories from 2020 and 2021. Now, since some of the better stories tend to veer a bit longer, this week's episodes will likewise be a bit longer than usual. Think of it as balancing out this shorter holiday week. Now, I had a blast digging into the archives and remembering the sheer breadth of topics I've covered these past three years. There was so much that I'd forgotten. I mean, six and a half hundred episodes will do that to you. So whether some of these stories are a refresher for you like they were for me, or you're a newer listener hearing them for the first time, I hope you enjoy our 2022 Best of Week. So for today, from the archives, we've got how and why food itself became gendered. You know, men eat red meat, women eat salads, women watch their weight, and men eat huge portions of the most ridiculous Mountain Dew-laced Dorito monstrosities they can come up with. Plus, what would happen if we just killed all the mosquitoes on the planet? And from 2021, the little-known reason that all the Brontes died so tragically young. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. How often do you see men in yogurt commercials? Hardly ever, unless it's one of those yogurts in black packaging advertising its high protein and being hocked by an ex-football player. And women are equally missing from ads for beef jerky, chili, and whiskey. Women drink white wine, eat salads, lean white meats, and lots of ice cream and chocolate. Men eat red meat, drink beer and bourbon, and, I don't know, the weirdest possible flavors of Doritos. The associations that many of us hold, even without really thinking about it, are so strong that a 2014 study in the journal Science Psychology showed that women are more likely to choose healthy, nutritious foods, while men gravitate towards less healthy options, when the options were presented with gendered cues. And even more so, when the participants in that study were given food with gender-neutral packaging, they reported it not tasting as good as the gendered ones. How did we get to this point? How did gender pervade our food options so deeply? Like so many other things, you can thank advertising, racism, and the 19th century. 
Yale historian Paul Friedman digs into this question in his book American Cuisine and how it got this way. Writing this week in The Conversation, Friedman points out that in America, before the Civil War, the whole family typically ate the same foods together. And I will add that the largely agrarian society in America at the time contributed to this dynamic. As Friedman points out, none of the best-selling household manuals or cookbooks at the time indicated that husbands would have different tastes that the wives should be catering to, as they would in the decades to come. The shift, or at least the main one that Friedman relays, came amidst various shifting social norms in the latter half of the 19th century, including more women joining the workforce. This precipitated the rise of women's restaurants, places where women could go to have a midday meal and not be disturbed by rowdy, drunken men. But, at least in the beginning, the menus in men's restaurants and women's restaurants were exactly the same. It was only as more and more women's restaurants began to proliferate and chains emerged that companies began coming up with foods they decided were more appropriate for women. Things like fish, cottage cheese, and desserts especially desserts. Seen as light and airy, and a vice that weak women couldn't resist, desserts outnumbered entrees on many menus at the time, according to Friedman. And this was another crucial shift in the 19th century. As Samira Kawash points out in her book Candy, A Century of Panic and Pleasure, sweet indulgences came to be associated with women and children as the cost of sugar went down. Back in the 17th and 18th centuries, Kawash says, during the reign of sugar plantations, having access to sugar was seen as a sign of immense wealth and power. When hosting events, the wealthy would display extravagant sugar-spun centerpieces. Quoting Kawash, As production became more mechanized in the 19th century, the price of sugar fell. And by the second half of the 19th century, sugar was both cheap and widely available. As a result, historian Wendy Wollison suggests sugar became linked with femininity. Its economic devaluation coincided with its cultural demotion. Sweets were banished to the margins of the table, just as women and children were banished to the drawing rooms and nurseries. It's a common belief that women and children are the ones who crave candy. The masculinity of a man who likes candy too much is often seen as somewhat suspect. This turns out to not be the whole story. Historically, men have also eaten their share and have even, at some points during the last century, been the primary market for it. But perhaps food historians have paid so little attention to candy because this cultural connection between sweet, trivial people, i.e. women and children, and sweet, trivial candy. End quote. And we also can't separate this from racism and colonialism. Apart from the enslaved people working on the sugar plantations, of course, white people also needed to prove that they were naturally and scientifically superior to everyone else. That was among the driving factors of the creation of strict gender boundaries around the 19th century. Quoting Kravitz Marshall in An Injustice magazine, as Melissa N. Stein discusses in Measuring Manhood, Race and the Science of Masculinity, race became the purview of 19th and early 20th century American science. White people used their physical gender standards and proposed sex differences to prove their superiority to Africans via scientific racism of the mid-1800s. Many know of the previous measurements of skulls for determining racial purity, but people also used similar evaluations to affirm their gender. 
Numerous middle-class white women used phrenology, the assessment of bumps on the skull, to reassure themselves of their womanhood and distinguish themselves from other races and lower economic classes. By promoting women's health as good for the race, Carla Biddle writes in Woman, Know Thyself, phrenology encouraged good breeding and recommended that women select partners with heredity in mind. Phrenologists in the United States argued that the procedure demonstrated that Europeans were morally and intellectually superior to other races. The 19th century saw white scientists declaring that only white people could achieve binary sex differentiation. By contrast, people of color allegedly hadn't evolved enough to differentiate between male and female. Essentially, they were unsexed, and this inability to reach this full sexual dichotomy was yet another marker of racial inferiority. End quote. So therefore, the more white people conformed to whatever high society and advertisements told them they were supposed to do as a man or as a woman, the safer they could feel at the top of the evolutionary pyramid, the more they could distinguish themselves from all other races and ethnicities. And this was certainly a class issue even within white society, with working class women being seen as much more masculine than their wealthy counterparts. I mean, after all, eating a hearty stew made with what your family could afford on your modest budget was just so much more manly than a clear, dainty soup. And so we have the explosion of sweet and dainty foods marketed towards women that really takes off as we enter the 20th century, and especially when Jell-O corners the market on colorful, jiggly salads. As Friedman points out, quote, at the same time, self-appointed men's advocates complained that women were inordinately fond of the very types of decorative foods being marketed to them, end quote. But fortunately, those cookbooks I mentioned were waiting in the wings to help women know what to cook for their husbands. As early as 1872, books with titles and subtitles like How to Keep a Husband and The Way to a Man's Heart instructed women on feeding their husbands foods that they themselves most likely did not desire at all. And as Friedman crucially points out, while all these guidebooks and advertisements were telling women they needed to devote themselves to making the perfect meals for their husbands, a lot of men were saying that they wanted a more carefree wife who wasn't exhausted from cooking all day. Enter the picture-perfect ideal of the 1950s housewife, who greets her husband with a fresh-from-the-oven roast while dressed in heels, a full face of makeup, and not a single hair out of place. And advertisements helped with that, too. As kitchen appliances became less laborious, they showed housewives could make a full meal without breaking a sweat. But then we get into the 1970s. The microwave makes convenience cooking even easier and more popular right as even more women are entering the workforce, second-wave feminism is blossoming, and gender-segregated dining venues are becoming less popular. But, quoting Friedman, as food historians Laura Shapiro and Harvey Levenstein have noted, despite these social changes, the depiction of male and female tastes in advertising has remained surprisingly consistent, even as some new ingredients and foods have entered the mix. Kale, quinoa, and other healthy food fads are gendered as female. Barbecue, bourbon, and adventurous foods, on the other hand, are the domain of men. End quote. Probably because I live in New York City and mostly hang around LGBTQ plus folks, I hadn't realized how pervasive this gendering still is until I was at a rehearsal dinner for a Midwestern cousin's wedding last year. 
I hadn't had too much to eat that day, so after finishing my own plate, I was gobbling down what was left of my aunt's kale salad. And as I did so, my uncle looked at me and asked why I was doing that, what my motivation was for eating all that kale. Was I worried about my cholesterol or something? Even though it wasn't my salad, the fact that I would happily be eating a plate of kale was completely confounding to him, even though he hadn't been confused at all why several of the women at the table had ordered it. The pernicious way generations of gendering food in society, on menus, in advertising has snuck into our consciousness has real-world consequences, like men being more likely to die of heart disease, in part due to less healthy diets, and women feeling shamed for eating anything too masculine, or assuming something is healthy because it's marketed in a feminine way, even though it might just in fact be loaded down with sugar. You know, it's absolutely wild how deep, often just made-up associations can penetrate, and for how long they can keep up, morphing to serve the unique paranoias of each generation. Given what we're seeing right now with trans people being used as the latest scapegoat of the culture wars, I'm sure the gender binary of food, with things like gunmetal black protein-packed yogurt for men, will only pick up in the coming years. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be a common choice or that a majority of people will actively care, but I think the products will absolutely be there for that vocal minority who has to prove their gender even through their breakfast choices. Hey, Mike. Glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeye's. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh, yeah. I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeye's. Let's go. Let Popeye's do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeye's flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants. Mosquitoes are one of the great summer annoyances. They're not just pests, though. Many of them can carry life-threatening diseases. Dengue fever, Zika, West Nile virus, yellow fever, malaria. Overall, mosquitoes kill somewhere between 750,000 and a million humans each year. The only other animal that breaks into the hundreds of thousands of kills each year, coming in second as the deadliest animal to humans, is fellow humans. We're already doing a pretty good job at ensuring our own species isn't around for much longer, and considering we like winning at all costs, what if we were to take out the only other animal above us on that list a bit more proactively? Now, with any pests, but especially ones that are the cause of so much death and suffering, and not just of humans, for the record, it can be easy to occasionally entertain the idea, what if they just didn't exist? Pretty quickly with most of those thought experiments, you realize that we need them for some reason. You know, bees, for example, we need them to keep pollinating plants. But mosquitoes? How much are they really helping the world? Do we really need them? Well, at least according to many scientists, no, not really. But eradicating all of them could pose some small risks, and eradication of all mosquitoes isn't really necessary anyways. Quoting a 2010 article in Nature, there are 3,500 named species of mosquito, of which only a couple hundred bite or bother humans. They live on almost every continent and habitat and serve important functions in numerous ecosystems. 
Mosquitoes have been on Earth for more than 100 million years, says entomologist Jitawadi Murphy, and they have co-evolved with so many species along the way. And continuing from nature, wiping out a species of mosquito could leave a predator without prey, or a plant without a pollinator. And exploring a world without mosquitoes is more than an exercise in imagination. Intense efforts are underway to develop methods that might rid the world of the most pernicious disease-carrying species. End quote. If we did manage to rid the world of mosquitoes, or even just some types of mosquitoes, how many animals would be out of a meal? Mosquitoes are the primary food source for a lot of other insects, as well as spiders, salamanders, lizards, frogs, some birds, and many types of fish, notably the mosquito fish. Nature notes that the mosquito fish is so talented at killing mosquitoes, it's actually stocked as pest control in some places. The mosquito fish would likely go extinct without mosquitoes, but a lot of the other species might find other sources of food, other types of insects to eat. And some animals we think of as primarily eating mosquitoes actually don't eat as many as we tend to think, especially in the wild. Bats, for example, mostly eat moths. Mosquitoes only make up 2% of their diets, according to nature. But one exceptional case of mosquitoes' impact is that of the Arctic tundra, where at certain times, there are so many mosquitoes that they form a thick, visible cloud. The caribou in that area pick migratory paths that attempt to evade the mosquitoes, who bite them enough to suck up to 300 milliliters of blood a day from each animal in the herd. If their path changed because there weren't mosquitoes to avoid, that would change the ecosystem because the caribou would now be trampling and feeding in different places. And while there's a concern about birds in the Arctic tundra losing their main source of food, some scientists like Kathy Kirby, a wildlife biologist in Alaska, says that mosquitoes don't actually show up in bird stomach samples in high numbers. Now, there are some cases where mosquitoes' larvae play an important role as filter feeders for aquatic ecosystems, and without them, plant growth could be affected, in some places more than others, where mosquitoes presently play more of an outsized role. That's why a lot of research right now is focused on ways to prevent mosquitoes from carrying diseases, but still allow them to live and breed and contribute to ecosystems. In fact, last year, the first genetically modified mosquitoes were released into the wild in Florida. And as I shared at the time, these mosquitoes were bred with a lethal gene that causes female offspring to die before reaching maturity, females being the only ones who bite humans. So this prevents the spread of diseases and also limits the population over time. The experiment was deemed a success and is being rerun this year in Florida as well as in California. But once you move beyond thought experiments and actually start thinking about eradicating entire species worth of mosquitoes, you have to start confronting your own morals. Even though mosquitoes can play a negative role in the lives of animals beyond just humans, like those poor caribou being pelted by clouds of mosquitoes, the idea of attempting to eradicate all or some species of mosquitoes is largely a human-centric notion. As medical entomologist Janet McAllister of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Colorado makes an excellent point, quote, if there was a benefit to having them around, we would have found a way to exploit them. We haven't wanted anything from mosquitoes except for them to go away, end quote. 
Sad but true. The fact that they haven't been exploited by humans for anything is perhaps the strongest argument that they don't offer any net positives to humans. I saw a musing on the subreddit Shower Thoughts yesterday that said the best survival strategies for animals seems to be to be useful to humans. As an example, evolutionary ecologist Dinah Fonseca points to the biting midges, or noceums, family of flies. They are super annoying and can infect humans with viruses, but we're not going to get rid of them because some of them are also pollinators of crops like cacao. A world with no noceum flies is a world without chocolate. But this isn't just about wanting to get rid of annoying pests because they aren't useful to us in any big, remarkable ways. It's about public health. As Smithsonian Magazine puts it, For thousands of years, the relentlessly expanding population of Homo sapiens has driven other species to extinction by eating them, shooting them, destroying their habitat, or accidentally introducing more successful competitors to their environment. But never have scientists done so deliberately under the auspices of public health. End quote. Surely, saving close to a million human lives a year would make any small, as entomologist Joe Conlon called them, hiccups worth it. But I can't help but wonder about the butterfly effect. If certain plant species die, if another insect becomes more dominant in order to sustain the diets of certain animals, if the migratory paths of some other animals change, what ripple effects will each of those eventually have that we can't presently foresee? As mosquito historian Timothy C. Weingard put it to Vox's Hope Reese in 2019, quote, To use the Star Wars analogy, there's a balance to the Force, and when there's a disturbance in the Force, things go awry, end quote. Exactly. And as Conlon continued, the ecosystems will get on with life, quote, something better or worse would take over. Better or worse. It could be worse. We could save hundreds of thousands of people's lives every year. Or we could cause even more to die. We just don't know. The Bronte sisters. You know, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne. Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre, and Emily wrote Wuthering Heights. And the less well-known, if only because Charlotte refused to allow it to be republished, but in some ways most influential novel in terms of feminism, Anne's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Add in the poetry, paintings, and translations of Bonus Bronte, their brother Branwell, and altogether you've got one pretty remarkable family. Their flames burned bright and fast, however, with each one of the four siblings dying before their 40s, with Emily, Anne, and Branwell each passing away right around age 30 within mere months of each other. For these progenitors of gothic literature, their tragically early deaths have often been depicted as mournfully poetic, reality imitating fiction, as it were. While their causes of death are officially believed to be from tuberculosis, Literary Hub points out that many people spin the incredibly close siblings' cause of death as being grief for one another. But there's another explanation, which, with apologies for being a bit glib, is even more goth. An 1850 report by Benjamin Herschel Babbage of the small parish town of Hayworth in which the Brontes lived and died found that everyone in that town spent their lives drinking water contaminated by the local graveyard, which sat right next to the parsonage in which the Bronte family lived. And drinking water tinged with dead bodies wasn't the only sanitation issue in Hayworth. Here's what the British Library says of the Babbage report, quote, 
Hayworth was a small industrial mill town, and the view onto the moors was broken by tall, smoking chimneys. Excrement ran down the street. For want of sewers, fenced-in areas held human waste, offal from the slaughterhouse and pigsty waste for up to months at a time. Housing was poorly ventilated and overcrowded, with several dwellings and cellars. Perhaps most appallingly, Babbage's investigation confirmed that the graveyard situated on the hill at the top of the town and in front of the Brontes' home was so overcrowded and poorly oxygenated that decomposing putrid matter filtered into the water supply. End quote. In fact, the Brontes weren't even unusual in Hayworth. The average life expectancy for the town was just 25.8 years old, and over 40% of people died before the age of six. The back-to-back deaths of the youngest Brontes was also not the only tragedy to befall the family. Their older siblings, Maria and Elizabeth, both passed away as preteens in 1825 after falling ill with, guess what, tuberculosis. And Literary Hub adds another finding from the Babbage report, quote, Babbage, seeking to get to the bottom of these statistics, found, among the other things, that there were not enough privies for the population, and those they had were filthy, not properly drained, and, bizarrely, much too public. Two of the privies used by a dozen families each are in the public street, he wrote, not only within view of the houses, but exposed to the gaze of passers-by, whilst a third, as though even such a situation were too private, is perched upon an eminence commanding the whole length of the main streets. The cesspit beneath this privy would sometimes overflow into the street. A water tap was two yards away from its door, end quote. Living in such unsanitary conditions, it makes perfect sense that the inhabitants of Hayworth would be weaker and more susceptible to illness, like tuberculosis. Today, there are over 40,000 bodies interred in the Hayworth Cemetery, some buried 10 deep on top of one another. The conditions creating a vicious cycle in which the dead produced more dead. The Guardian also points out that the non-stop funerals in their community, in addition to the family's own tragedies, the children's mother also died shortly after the birth of Anne, the youngest, no doubt explains the excruciatingly morose themes of many of their novels. The Babbage Report fortunately precipitated improvements to the town's sanitary conditions. A small win for Patriarch Patrick Bronte, who had been the one to commission the report in the first place, as he worked through his grief for his three children after already losing two others and his first wife. After the report was published, Bronte continued petitioning the newly established General Health Board to construct more toilets and an improved reservoir in the parish. His grief-motivated quest for data and fight to protect the community in which he served as resident parish priest inspired one travel writer last year to call him the Dr. Fauci of his time. That might be a bit much, but it is good to hear that through the many years of tragedy in that parish, community members were finally able to get those in power to take action. It's a tragic tale for sure, but like many of the Bronte sisters' novels, through the gloom, there's at least a small glimmer of peace at the end, and optimism for the future.
Well, links are in the show notes to all of the original sources for these segments, as well as the original episodes themselves. Our best of programming will continue tomorrow and Thursday, so I hope you tune back in for these encore performances of some of my favorite stories from the Cool Stuff Ride Home's tenure thus far. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.